Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and today we're continuing Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk, Hour 2. Here we go. Great questions are coming in, and if you have one, we'd love to hear it, and we'll do our very best to answer it. 877-933-2484. My power panel today all pizza it up. (laughs) Pastor Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdoran. Gentlemen, welcome to Hour 2. Hi, Bill. You know how many people... Several people came up to me in Madison and said, you know, we always thought your name was Jeffrey Dorn. So thank you for pausing between my first and last name. Yes. I'm on a, I'm on a mission to make sure people hear your name correctly. But in the top of uh, the first hour, we talked about Zionism. And I've got another question about Israel. So if we can start this hour with this question, how does the current country of Israel compare to the Israel of the Bible? geographically and politically. Do you believe we should still fully support Israel politically? I do. I'm just curious of your opinions. Well, God says he will bless those that bless her, Israel. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yes, we are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and bless Israel, definitely. As far as the borders, this is actually debated. Generally speaking, the Bible is pretty clear about the northern border being the Euphrates River of the ultimate promised land of Israel. On the western border, that would be the Mediterranean. On the southern border, it would be the River of Egypt. And then the eastern border is a little more unclear. Uh, But remember, when the 12 tribes conquered the land of Canaan and settled in their land, they were both on the west side of the Jordan and the east side of the Jordan. So I think it's fair to say that the ultimate promised land of Israel will be larger than what they have today. Nicely done. Tom, any comment? That sounds good to me. All right, I like that. All right, is Halloween a holiday a Christian should not celebrate or participate in? Are there costumes such as a witch or a devil that should not be worn? It's always a tough question. You know, I've been doing some study on this going back to the Druids and, you know, the Celtic and the whole background of these kind of things. I think Christians have to be wise about how they handle this. You know, I am not for putting things outside that resemble the dark side at all. But it is an opportunity. You know, kids like candy. Let them come get candy. And there are lots of nice little things you can give kids that are Mm Christ-centered. You know, little booklets, little pamphlets, a variety of things. And I know people that do that. Uh, I know one person that actually has a, you know, you plug it into your computer and you can download stuff. And they downloaded stuff from their church of kids singing or whatever. And then along with the candy, they passed it out. They must have had 100 of them. Well, I don't know how many people go home and listen. But I'll bet you there will be a testimony one day. Yeah, I can remember back in 19, you know, 2021 when I went to this house as a kid, you know, in the future and saying, that's how I became a Christian. Hmm. So I would say ignoring it is not the best thing to do because we don't want to ignore evil, but we want to identify it for what it is and then also find 
the alternative in what the Word of God says. And so uh, I'll be passing out candy, but they're going to get a little more than that, too, and Jesus has something to do with it. (laughs) You know, the tradition of passing out candy uh, or goodies or something biblical— uh, two, don't just pass out some track. I mean, make sure you give them candy oh. and a track. <laughs> and uh, But to little kids coming to your door, you know, it's kind of a wonderful tradition. And most of them, the vast majority of them, have no idea of the history or the dark side of Hall- Hallowed Eve, right? Halloween. Um, there are witches and warlocks in real life. They actually exist. And this is a special uh, and dark spiritual night for them. Uh, so the the dark side is real, and it does have a bad history. But look, in America, for the most part, we are not practicing the dark side of Halloween, which does exist. Uh, but Tom, like you said, I don't think Christians need to avoid. It. Yeah, I wouldn't dress your kid up as the devil. I mean, I don't don't do that. Pick Snow White, or you know, maybe a uh, an animal, or you know, uh, my kids win as Winnie the Pooh one year, <laughs> and uh, you know, my my kids later on when they grew up. For one Halloween, they got with some of our neighbors who are also strong believers. And I think there was six or seven of them. And they all put on white T-shirts and they wrote on it blind. And then they put on sunglasses and brought canes. And it was the blind leading the blind. And they went about as a big group and they had fun. Yeah. So you can have fun. Just don't. And part- this, it, but there's some dark parts of Halloween sure. that we shouldn't participate in, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and you think about it. We live in an incredible age. We have the ability to technology that we've never had before. And one of the things uh, I believe in, if you can do it, and and I have a friend who's into all that stuff, and he said it's pretty easy. You can get a little motion-activated machine that when the kids come up the doorstep, it starts singing, Jesus loves me, this, or anything you want on there that gives any witness to the Lord Jesus Christ, or just music that's soothing you know, and comforting. We have opportunities don't let the opportunity go by. Yeah, there's there's part of the history is my understanding is that on All Saints Day or Hallowed Eve, spirits or people would come out of their grave and roam around. And if you didn't make an offering or provide them something, the, tr- the treat, they would do a trick on you in some way. So this was an appeasing of some dead spirits is kind of the history of all this stuff. But today we're giving candies to little kids and cute little outfits, right? That's the tradition. So yeah. Um, you know, but I do understand why some Christians avoid it completely, and mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with that either, I don't think. You know, yeah, use your conscience as the Lord guides you, and if you can do something creative, you know, do it. Mm-hmm. All right, in Luke chapter 18, it's the parable of the persistent widow. Mm. And it says in verse 1, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Let's just leave it there. Let's talk about how important it is to persist in prayer and not give up. I've had people say to me, well, you know, you only need to pray about it once. And if you pray about it twice, you don't have any faith. And I say, wow, Jesus prayed three times in the Garden of Gethsemane, the same thing. Hmm. So I don't think that's a principle we ought to rely on. But what we're talking about here is this. When you keep going back to the Lord and keep praying, and we've all done that to some degree for people, for situations, or whatever. I'm not telling the Lord what he needs to do. And I'm not telling the Lord to get on the stick you know, and get this done. What I'm doing in that prayer time is aligning my mind with the Lord. And then he starts to give me insights how to talk to that person, 
how to reach out to that person, how to do this or do that. So the prayer, uh, like the widow here, uh, <clears throat> got justice from the judge, mm -hmm. and Jesus is showing kind of a, a human way of doing that. But he says, look, your heavenly father is much more eager to answer you. But the problem is most of us aren't there constantly asking the Lord. We may do it once, and then we go on our way, and then we wonder why that prayer wasn't answered. Where sometimes you have to pray it over and over and over just to hear the Lord's voice right now what he's saying. So this is uh, one of the big themes of this parable is to be persistent in prayer, obviously. That seems to be uh, um, evident here. Um, you know, Paul prayed three times, right, to, for the thorn of the flesh to be taken away. Um, so, yes, being persistent in prayer. I, I, you know, if you have a family member who doesn't know the Lord um, and you only pray three times to that person that God will move and circumstances in their life that they might accept and receive Christ and be saved— uh, you know, I, I, we should probably pray 3,000 times or more for any loved one that doesn't know the Lord yet, so be persistent in prayer. I, I just want to point out one aspect of this parable that, that some say, well, actually, the, the primary meaning of this has to do with the nation of Israel. Now, give me just a second mm -hmm. here. That the nation of Israel, when it says, do not lose, pray at all times, and do not lose heart or give up, or in the Greek, it means to grow weary or weak. And it says at the end then, it says, he will promptly carry out justice on their behalf. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, he will find faith on earth. And so some look at this parable and say, I think this is about Israel not losing faith, not losing heart, that God surely one day will come and save Israel. It's the top topic that we were talking about earlier, that one day all Israel will be saved, Romans eleven twenty six, and at the second coming, Israel will finally look upon their Savior, the one they have pierced, right, uh, Zechariah says, and finally recognize Christ as Messiah and be saved. Uh, so some think one of the themes of this is Israel, don't lose heart, do not grow weary, uh, because the Lord is going to come and Israel will be saved one day. But obviously the practical um, theme that we get immediately is is this idea of, no, be persistent in prayer. And that's where, when you come to church, uh, too often we go to church, we go in and try to get the seat we want, you know, the comfortable seat. We get our, you know, uh, look up on the screen at the song or the hymnals or whatever. I encourage people, you know, don't come into church and just talk about the Vikings or the twins. Come into church and literally ask the the first person you see, Tell me, Jeff, what's Jesus done in your life this week? We need to be constantly reminded the Lord is active. The Most of us, though, don't see well, and we need to be reminded of that. And that's why I keep going to back those 59 one another passages in the New Testament. And those are the things we're to be doing over and over, encouraging, admonishing, listening to, pushing one another in a proper sense, and uh, not just being an audience. So Doing this consistently and doing that, I talk to people all the time. How's the Lord answering your prayers? What's he saying to you? You know, have you seen any miracles, had any divine appointments? And uh, I had one lady say to me not long ago, she goes, you know, I never knew I had a divine appointment in my life till you kept asking us, so and now I'm just starting to run into it <laughs> all the do. time. But that's exactly what happens. You know, you go out buy a, a new car, all right, or you're looking at a car. I was looking at a Jeep Rubicon the other day. I'm a Jeep guy, all right? I was looking at a Jeep Rubicon. Beautiful car, right? I was at the dealers, get my oil changed. And I don't remember seeing Jeep Rubicons on the road. They're pretty rare. Well, now I see Jeep Rubicons everywhere I go. I mean, they're all over the place. That's what we're talking about here.
Hmm. So in your church, are your do you have pews or chairs, and do they have cushions on them or not? I, I, I'd like chairs with cushions on them, but we still have the pews. It's 150 years old. With cushions or no cushions? Right now we're without cushions. We're they're they're sitting through a very hard sermon on Sunday morning. <laughs> Nobody's falling asleep. Nobody, absolutely yeah. not. All right, love to hear your question. Eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. After the rapture, is the Holy Spirit taken out of the earth, and will people still be able to get saved? So this is probably based on a passage in Second Thessalonians 2, where Paul says that the restraining force must be removed, and then the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, will be revealed. And so many, including me, interpret that as meaning that the, the church, who is filled with the Holy Spirit— who is a restraining force for evil in this world, needs to be removed before uh, basically all hell is literally going to break out on earth, right? Um, so, yeah, it's going to get really bad really fast when we who are salt and light in this world, some argue whether or not the he or the restraining force is specifically the Holy Spirit or whether it's the church. I say, look, the church is indwelt by the Spirit. That is the restraining force. It's going to be gone. But that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is no longer going to uh, uh, be active in the world, right? When someone believes during the tribulation, Jesus made a promise when he said, if you believe, you will receive the Holy Spirit and he will be with you forever. That promise is still valid even during the tribulation. Well, what do we say? We talk about the attributes of God, omnipotent, omnipresent, that he's everywhere and in everything and in all time. So removed may simply be there's not a more vocal voice of the Holy Spirit through people, through the Word, whatever it may be. But that's not the removal of the Holy Spirit because you can't remove the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, the Son, Jesus, or God, the Father, because they're in everything. They're there. The issue is how far are they removed in our heart? And will our heart listen to them and respond to what he's saying? All right, we'll take a break. We'll come back. Lots more guy talk. Let me know what question you have. 877-933-2484. I'm with Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn. We'll be right back. Hi there and welcome. If you are a new listener, we want to officially welcome you with a free welcome packet gift. Request yours today at MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome back to the show. It's time for God Talk or guys who talk. They're doing a great job because your questions are great, and that's what makes the show lively. So thank you for sending over questions, 877-933-2484. Gentlemen, is the prayer, come Lord Jesus, be our guest, and let these gifts to us be blessed? Is that a biblical prayer to pray before meals? Well, the question is, is that in the Bible? No, you're not going to find it in the Bible. Does it contain the sentiments of the Bible? Yeah, it pretty much does that. So it's kind of a a paraphrase, and I would encourage people certainly to do that. Um, What I tell people try to do, though, is not keep praying the same prayer that becomes repetitious, but to speak from the heart. So it's okay as a family gathering where everybody's got that memorized to do that. 
but individually or when your family members are over, you know, whoever in the family should start with a prayer that's much more personal. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. Do you have any traditions? I mean, uh, as far as going out to restaurants, my tradition is once you get to a restaurant and order, pray right then. Oh, yeah. Because I think pray. prayer should be the most important part Absolutely. of the meal. Absolutely. And, and versus the food gets delivered and then you scramble to pray and the waiter, the waiter's coming back and it's always yeah. awkward. You're smiling at me, Jeff. No, I totally agree. Okay. Uh, but I usually pray when the fruit arrives. I might have to change that uh, tradition. I think it's very interesting to watch people in restaurants. And you know how many people I actually see pray in restaurants, in full restaurants over yeah. the years? Very few Mm-hmm. Very, very few. In fact, when my, me and my wife now, but my family growing up, we always pray before a meal, even if we're at a restaurant or home or whatever. And um, we've had a number of people over the years come up and just say something like, you know, it's so good to see that you're praying before your meal. Sweet. And they've, they noticed it. They observed it. And I, I think it's a testimony. I will add a challenge. If you do that today, great. If you're not doing that, I encourage you to do it because... I think it's one of those times in our life that we can set aside to say, you know what? I'm going to thank the Lord. Just like we talked about in the last hour, the the one person who came back to thank Jesus for his healing. So too, before food hits your mouth, you can thank the Lord. Yeah, and where is Jesus not Lord? You know, I mean, we have we may have government trying to tell us where he can be and not be, but that doesn't mean he can't be there. That doesn't mean you can't literally in the public school as a parent Use the name of Jesus and speak up if you don't like something. That means as a student in a school, you can still use the name of Jesus. We still have freedom of speech in this country. And the sovereignty of Jesus applies everywhere. There's no place off limit. And so I encourage people, be wise, do it with good judgment, but at the same time, don't be a bit hesitant to speak up and use his name. And one more challenge to all of us, church, Um, not just pray, how about asking our server— if there's something we can pray for yeah. them. And all it takes is a little line that says, hey, we're going to pray before our, when our, before our food gets here to thank the Lord for our food. Is there anything that we can pray for you about? It's a good and word. I, and I can tell you, we've had people pour out their hearts to us. We've had people almost start crying right there. Like, yes, we have some that kind of mock it and say, yeah, you can pray for my cat or something. And, you know, they're they're not really... But, it's it's just the reaching out, mm-hmm. and maybe, just maybe, a spiritual conversation may start up because of it, and That's it a, often will. It's a great word. I have one more thing, though, when I end a meal, and the waitress comes with the bill, I tell them, Jeff's got it. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, I always write on my bill uh, some kind of message to them, That's like, good. the Lord bless you, or whatever. Nice. Sometimes put That's their nice. name down. And if you do that, make, just make sure you, you give them a decent tip as well, so... All right. If the remnant of Israel will be saved in the end, what will happen to the non-believing Jewish people that have already died? Well, I think it's the same as every non-Jewish person who has already died outside of Christ. Uh, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father Except through him, there's only one mediator between God and man, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. There's only one name under heaven and earth by which men can be saved, and that is the name of Jesus, Yeshua. Um, And so uh, I believe whether you're Jew or Gentile, we talked about this in the last hour, 
All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, whether you're Jew or Gentile. Christ came to die for sin, for all sin. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, whether you're Jew or Gentile. Whosoever believes, whether Jew or Gentile, will be saved. And when you're saved, you have that assurance of eternal life. And so that's true, whether you're Jew or Gentile. I've had people say to me, well, that's not fair. Why do they get a better shot at the end than I get right now? And the point is, none of us will ever be able to stand before Jesus and say, that wasn't fair, because he will point out how it was eminently fair, and we had every opportunity, just like those at the very last, you know, in the the end of time, will have that opportunity. That's why the Scripture says, today is the day of salvation. We keep trying to put it off till tomorrow or hope we get a better, you know, <laughs> offer. It doesn't work that way. When you come under conviction now, this is the time you respond. All right, here's another question. I read several pla- I I've read several times in the Bible about not getting drunk. It seems there is a lot of wine drinking in the Bible. Does getting drunk literally mean intoxicated or does it have a different meaning? That's a good question. Um I think anything I haven't looked at the Greek recently on that, but I think intoxicated is basically what we call out of control. You've lost control of your environment. You've lost control of who you are. And and I would say that we want to stay away from. That creates all kinds of problems. And I've counseled with many couples that have uh, gotten into a lot of those kind of problems when they were either dating or now that they're married. And they wind up being very embarrassed or they hurt somebody else's feelings. So, you know, don't get drunk. Uh, but the Bible does not prohibit someone from drinking wine or alcohol in that sense. There's no direct prohibited is just don't get drunk. You know, I think the word excess uh, we could talk about here. You know, I think the in the question is this idea, the questioner is probably familiar with the Timothy passage where Paul says to Timothy, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. So, you know, Paul says, drink some wine. Now, remember, wine was probably, probably didn't have the same alcoholic content that it does today. It was probably less. Um, and water was not always clean in the first century. So a lot of people would have, you know, stomach things that a little alcohol would do them good. And I think that's what Paul is referring to here. But he says, do not be drunk on much wine. And that's the kind of the out of the control, what you were just talking about. Look, as believers in Christ, we should be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit should direct our actions and guide us in our life. We should keep in step with Him. When you drink alcohol, and I will say this for any um, mood-altering drug of any kind, behavior-altering drug of any kind, you, you, are, you are leaving the protection and the realm of following the Spirit, and you are going to be out of control. And I think that's the exhortation God is saying. Don't do that. Don't be out of control. Be in control. Be self-controlled. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit, which means to, 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 to abide in Christ and let Him be in control, not alcohol or some other substance. All right, gentlemen, open Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Get that open, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. That's verses. in the Old Testament, right? Yeah. It's in the Old Testament. Still is. Yeah, okay. Verses 18 to 20. Solomon is in the middle of... Wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. Okay. My Bible doesn't have... Neither does mine. Oh, okay. A, a 418. 
Okay. It is a 16. Yeah, this was going to be a really, this was going to be a trick question. I think it, it, this, it is a trick question. <laughs> trick us. Yeah. You know, I didn't look it up myself before reading this verse, this question. Yeah. That so, might be a good idea in the future, but. <laughs> I think they meant three. Okay. Three, 18, 20. All right. There we go. All right. Thank you, Wyatt. Wyatt to the rescue. See how my producer stands up there for me? Go. It is so impressive. You guys mock me, and Wyatt stands up for me. <laughs> I love that. All right, Ecclesiastes 3, 18 to 20. Solomon is in the middle of everything is meaningless and making the comparison with animals and humans. I'm struggling with the statements of being tested to see we are like animals, the same fate, same breath, and having no advantage over animals. It's hard to reconcile those words with words from Genesis and creation of animal and man. Or is it just about death? From Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 18 to 20. Thanks, Wyatt. Uh, the, I'm not going to answer it, guys. This is your time to talk. Okay? No, I'm just thanking you for coming to <laughs> no, my No, I rescue. know. These two are uh, gathering their thoughts, though. Well, they are. Right. <laughs> we are. Well, we're just looking it over. I'm checking my Bible. Here. Yeah, me too. A lot of dead silence right there. Don't you agree, Wyatt? In radio, that's a lot of silence. That's great for radio, isn't it? <laughs> it you know, what we're doing is we're trying to understand, you know, because I don't know when the last time I was in Ecclesiastes 3, so we're just trying to read a little bit around it to kind of understand the context. We were talking about that we were. earlier. and uh, Well, as I'm looking at this, Jeff, it looks like, you know, it's being pointed out here by Solomon that it, death is inevitable, both for the animals and for the people. And that's why he talks about vanity. What do we, most people put uh, as value in their life? Having a big home, having money, having those things. But when you come to the end of your life, it is astounding for me because I've been there with many people. They never talk about that. All they talk about is what comes next, what did I fail to do, and how I should have been wiser in this life. And so he's comparing, you know, you've got people and the animals together here. They all come to the same end. But, and it doesn't say it here, but it will elsewhere, you know, what does he say? It's earlier in Ecclesiastes. What has God put in our heart? Eternity. Mm-hmm. Eternity is already there. And so we're playing off of that back up in verse 3. We need to wise up now and live our life now, not wait to the end of our life so that we make good decisions. Too many of the people I've run into want to be the thief on the cross. Eat, drink, and be merry, and at the last moment, sneak in. That's not the way to live. Yeah, so he's the context is he's talking about judgment coming to both the righteous and to the wicked right before that. And then right after that, that all will die, just like the animals. All will go to the same place. All yep. will come from, all come from the dust, and to the dust all return. That's where that ashes to ashes, dust to dust kind mm-hmm. of thing comes from. And and I think the, the picture is clear. Look, life is going to be meaningless. Is all, all you do is be born, you live your life, and then you die, and you're going to return to the dust of the ground. Life calls God calls this this life short and fleeting, a vapor in the wind as the grass withers and the flower fades. Everyone is going to die, and if that's all it is, well, it's meaningless. So what what can you do to make it not meaningless? Well, that is to trust in the one that is in heaven that you will be saved and have not an existence that ends with dust in the ground, but an existence that lasts with eternal life. Apart from the Bible, one of the most powerful things I've ever read, believe it or not, John Steinbeck, Grapes of Wrath, were talking about the migrant workers, and he says, and when they died, 
it was as though they had never lived. Mm. How many people are going to have that as part of their resume? I think that's the theme right here. Yeah. All right. Can you explain why animal sacrifice had to be part of the Abrahamic covenant? Well, without the shedding of blood, the Bible says there is no forgiveness of sin. The other cultures sacrificed children. They sacrificed women. They sacrificed their enemies. Mm. And so there was the bloodletting. We come along now, and all of a sudden, instead of Abraham sacrificing a human being, his son Isaac, the Lord tells him no. And what is then what do they see in the thicket? They see a ram. And so from that point on, it was no longer the sacrificing of people for sin to be forgiven or to do the Lord's will. It was the sacrificing or the shed blood of animals. And the blood of the shed animal represented our blood being shed, but it's not being shed by us. The Lord has put it on the animal instead. And that's a blessing. It's an act of mercy and grace. And so that became very prominent. And that's why Jesus is the once and all sacrifice for sin. The shedding of his blood is what frees us from all unrighteousness. I've asked myself the same question over the years, and Tom, your answer is exactly where kind of my mind went from Scripture, that there's no forgiveness without this, the shedding of blood. Uh, God says the life is in the blood, yep. but ultimately it is a picture of the ultimate sacrifice that you just described, that in Christ's blood we have forgiveness and salvation. All right, we're going to take a little break. We'll be back with more Guide Talk, but I'll need your question. I know you got one, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Yeah. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arnold. I'm back with Guide Talk. Jeff and Tom are my power panel today. Uh, is it true that the religion of Islam reads and believes the first five books of the Bible? I well, I don't know about that. In terms of the Torah, which are the first five books. They recognize those books, and they will talk about Abraham, uh, but I don't think they would look at it, nor do they apply the laws and the statutes that are there, or the worship of Yahweh. Uh, they have their own version, and they've created their own uh, understanding of what that means. And that's why they trace their lineage to Ishmael, uh, not to uh, Isaac, and that's why they are Muslims and not Jews. Yeah, there's... Remember the division that we were talking about in the Arab world between Ishmael and Isaac um, and the division that also came actually with Jacob and Esau. So you've got this division of the Jews, the people of God, and the promise uh, that, that Muslims believe passed through uh, Ishmael and, uh, and down through the Arab world, and where, where predominantly we have the Islamic uh, world. So, you know, they believe, for example, that Jesus was a prophet of God. And they believe many things uh, of the Bible. Um, and, and I don't know precisely what their view of the Torah was, but it wouldn't be surprise me to say that they would believe that, you know, it's one of the revelations of God in some way, shape, or form. Because in the end, the dividing line, the key dividing line of any religious belief system is what do you do with the person of Jesus Christ? Amen. Is he a prophet or is he the creator of all? 
that came to earth, Emmanuel, God with us, when he said to Philip, don't you know me, Philip? When Philip asked, show us the Father, uh, he says, I am the Father. And um, and so there, that is, that's the critical critical difference. Um, much of the same history, I think they recognize a lot of the Old Testament history, uh, have a spin on many parts of it, uh, but it's the person of Christ. I'll, I'll add one thing. We were just in Israel, and on the site where God's temple stood, on the Temple Mount, uh, where uh, God's presence once dwelt in the first temple, where the Ark of the Covenant was, and God's presence was in the Holy of Holies, and where that temple stood, there now stands what's called the Dome of the Rock, and it was built around the 6th century A.D., and the Ottomans controlled uh, Jerusalem and the Temple Mount area, and they built this dome. It's a gold dome over the rock that they believe Abraham was going to sacrifice Ishmael on. And on the outside of that temple, it says someplace, there's lots of things written, but one of the things that it says is God has no son. Whoa. Now, as Christians— Whoa. We believe that Christianity is based on the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, in fact, God himself. Amazing. All right, please discuss the post-resurrection conversation between Jesus, Peter, and John noted in John chapter 21, verse 21. I'm preaching on that Sunday. Well, I'm going to let you go first then, Tom Parrish. Well, basically, the conversation there is uh, they have been fishing, not catching anything, and Jesus, they went out and fished, and then they caught it. Now they're having breakfast with the risen Lord Jesus. And three times he says to Peter, do you love me? And uh, Peter, of course, is grieved the third time, and he says, you know I love you. Each time he says, feed my lambs or feed my sheep. And then at the end, um, he tells Peter about how he's going to be, his life's going to come to an end, how he's going to be taken where he doesn't want to go, stretched out his arms. And, of course, he's describing crucifixion. Uh, but then in the end, the very last thing he says there to Peter is, follow me. And I think that is such a great statement for us to understand because Jesus is saying to Peter, it's not going to be, you know, everything's coming up roses. It's going to be hard. You're going to have a hard time. But stick with me. And do you really love me? And I think one of the things I want to emphasize Sunday, it's easy to say that we love Jesus. And I believe people do. I'm not in church. I'm not saying they don't. But how far does that carry over into sacrifice? How far does that carry over into forgiving your enemies? How far does that carry over into doing something that's going to take a lot of your time and resources? Loving Jesus means we go the extra mile. And that's what he's basically asking Peter. And what's interesting is I looked this up. The first two Greek words for love is agape, or agapao, as we understand it, and that's that divine love. Do you love me? The third one, though, is phileo, from which we get Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. And basically what you see is Jesus twice asked Peter, because think about it, three times Peter denied Jesus, three times Jesus asked this question, but Jesus says something interesting. The first two are about Jesus. Do you love me? The last one is basically... He talks about, are you truly a friend? And that means feed my sheep, which means everybody around him. It means his brothers and sisters, and then taking the gospel even to the unbelievers. Hmm. Phenomenal passage, and uh, I hope I do a decent enough job and people get it on Sunday. So Tom gets to teach on this on Sunday. I actually just taught on this. On so this is what. I- <laughs> Send me your Tom's notes. already looking at me. <laughs> I got to teach on uh, uh, on this passage 
standing on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, right no. in front of the, the this church that's there called the Primacy of Peter, where they believe this event actually happened. And it's just a cool spot on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and uh, it's just a special spot. But yes, I mean, one of the keys is what you brought up, that Jesus actually changes the question the third time, right? Yeah. Do you agapeo me or agape yeah, me? Yeah. Do you agape me? Do you phileo me? But you also said follow me. I'm going to read this part of the passage because I think this is kind of funny in a way, and it's a big lesson for us. Peter turned and saw the disciple who Jesus loved, that's John, was following them. This was the one who had learned leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? That's John. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? That's never a good question to ask, right? Well, what about that guy? What about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? But you follow me. Yep. And so it says, because of this rumor spread among believers that John was never going to die and live till the second coming of, of Christ. No, that's not what Jesus said. He says, look, you worry about you. Let John worry about him. You follow me. Nicely done. All right, we're going to take a little break and let me know what questions you have. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back with Guide Talk. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com. I am back with my power panel, Jeff Verdorn and Tom Parrish. It is Guy Talker, Guys Who Talk. Thank you for all the great questions you've sent over. I would love to address this one, gentlemen, in terms of maybe having a discussion on the egalitarian versus the complementarian position. This question comes in often, and you know what the question is about. It's about uh, female elders or pastors. So maybe it's best if we just discussed the egalitarian versus the complementarian position. Do you want to define them, or do you want me to define them? Go ahead. Do you want to start? I'll let you start. So these are kind of two views of women, uh, specifically in leadership positions within the church. Do um, the the complementarian position says that uh, we are all one in Christ, uh, we are all equal in Christ. But these two genders have different roles within the church. They complement each other. So men are only to be elders and pastors within the church. And this goes to several passages in the Bible, uh, specifically, for example, where Paul says of elders that they'd be husbands of but one wife, head of their household, manage their household well, and so on. And so the complementarian would not put women uh, as pastors, elders, leaders, uh, within the local church. That does not mean that women uh, can't do ministry and, and can't be active in the church and do all kinds of other things, but just specifically for leadership. By the way, there's a concept that complementarians would usually uh, say it parallels that of the the relationship in the family, that, that Christ has made the man head of the church, so too a man is head of 
the, I'm sorry, of the family, and man is head of the church. Egalitarian says that we are one in Christ, we're equal in Christ, and we're equal in uh, role and position within the church. Men or women can be pastors, elders, or anything. There's no distinction that the Bible makes uh, in terms of uh, leaders of the church being just male. Was that a fair enough summary of the two issues? You did a good job, yes. That's exactly right. It's a debate, and here's my contention on the whole thing. Uh, I'm credentialed through the uh, AFLC, which holds to the position that women cannot be pastors. The church I serve is LCMC, which has women pastors. I've come to the conclusion of this. The scriptures, and I know there are strong views on both sides, but the scripture is pretty insistent that the Lord will use whoever he wants to use to preach the gospel, and he does. Now, I would think it'd be extremely difficult for a woman to be the senior pastor of a church and try to work out of that, because I'm a big guy, and I've been doing this for 50 years, and let me tell you, it's not easy. Uh, it's been not easy at all. And sometimes I was glad I was 250 pounds and, you know, six foot tall. But the bottom line is, what I'm discovering is, I want to see whoever the Lord calls do their job, because if they're doing their job, people are coming to faith. If they're not doing their job, it doesn't matter whether they're male or female. I'm caught in between. I, I really don't know what to say. I just want to do what the Lord wants. And, and um, so I, I've taught both men and women in seminary about preaching and teaching, and I want them to do the best job they can. I think uh, gotquestions.com is a really neat Christian answer site yeah. uh, that has a lot of great articles about a lot of great questions. I think this question is one of their top three, if, I, if I'm if i not mistaken, uh, about women in ministry. So, you know— I think one of the things we need to be careful about is applying our cultural standards to Scripture. Let's get our truth from Scripture and let it influence culture rather than culture influence Scripture. Whatever you, th- whatever your culture is about men and women, I, uh, because there's some cultures out there uh, where women don't have any rights, don't have right to go to education, don't have right to, you know, uh, uh, they're, they're basically property in certain countries. Uh, they have, in fact, they have to cover themselves completely up and so on and so forth. So we have to distinguish between cultural norms and biblical standards. Um, I tend to fall on the complementarian side that we're equal in Christ, men and women, but God has reserved uh, church leadership for men just as the man is the head of the house so too men are the head of the church. But that's my understanding. Mm-hmm. All right, I've heard people tell me that I should make my prayers specific. Uh, is this biblical? Well, I teach people that all the time, and here's the reality. The more specific you are, the more you see what the Lord's doing. Mm-hmm. If, we're, if we're generally praying, Lord, bring world peace, <laughs> which is what all the pageant People say, you know, I want world peace. It's pretty hard to see that. But when you get specific, Lord, bring peace between my brother and his wife or between my sister and her husband or with their kids. And then as the Lord moves, you see that. But the generalizations are the ones that I think are difficult for people because it's very hard to see the Lord's activity and generalize the more specific. But you should only pray specifically as you're led by the Lord to pray specifically. It's not just you saying, Lord, I want a brand new Jeep Rubicon 2023 V8 engine, the whole. No, 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 that's not where we're going. It'd be different if I prayed, Lord, I need transportation. I don't know what to do. Please, Lord, give me some answers. 
Uh, when I start telling the Lord specifically which car, that's a different matter. But in terms of like people, I do pray specifically for people. I pray for people and work with people that are fighting demonic. I fight, and people are fighting alcoholism. And when I pray for somebody with alcoholism, I pray the Lord will deliver that man or woman, and I use their name specifically when I pray. So it depends on the circumstances, but I would encourage you the more specific you can be, the better. I like that. The more specific you are, the more you'll see God's specific response to prayers. Um, I like that a lot. I, but at the same time, I want to—I just want to say this. Some might say, okay, we got to be specific about everything. Hmm. And there are many, many prayers in the Bible that aren't specific. You know, Paul, there are examples yeah. that are specific. And don't, don't preclude the general prayer. I mean, Numbers says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. You know, in some ways that's specific, but not really, I don't think, in the way that we're talking about. It's a general prayer that says the Lord bless you and keep you. I think that's a wonderful prayer, too. Mm -hmm. All right, here's a question regarding the conflict in Israel. Um, Regarding the conflict, how can two groups of people of different religions kill innocent people in the name of their faith? doesn't add up. Well, let's make a distinction here. From the, Let me clarify this question. There's one group that is attacking civilians. One group in the name of their God is attacking unarmed civilians. Mm-hmm. There is another group in, in that's not in the name of their God, in the name of self-defense, is attacking the militants who came after the innocent civilians. So I don't want to make some kind of equality here that they're both killing innocent people in the name of their God because I don't think that's an accurate reflection of what's happening. Well, I agree with you. When you take what Hamas has done, we know they they beheaded 40 babies. There is no place in a war. I don't care what your cause is. There is no place for that as we understand To target civilians anywhere. Exactly. And quite honestly, Israel, like America, has a right to defend its homeland now, where they make mistakes, that's where they have, hopefully, diplomats and other people and religious leaders to hold them accountable, just like in the United States, we make mistakes. But the general principle is that we only fight a defensive war, we're not fighting an offensive war, and we don't kill civilians in the process. So, I've been to Israel four times. One of the times I was there was in 2014. We had 1,400 rockets fired into Israel while I was in country with 50 high school kids doing a tour of Israel. Um, So I learned, got a quick lesson on the Iron Dome, on Gaza, on the border of Gaza, and, uh, and the tactics of the IDF. The IDF, more than any other military in the entire world, does more to minimize civilian casualties. They will actually text people in a building in Gaza that they know that are there to warn them that they're going to take out the building because they're trying to get the infrastructure, the places where rockets are stored or rocket launchers are stored, and they specifically will warn the civilians, knowing that some of them may warn Hamas and some of the militants that happen to be in that building. The other thing they do often is to do door knocker uh, munitions where they will hit a building with a small charge that basically knocks the door of the building. It's the roof of the building, not the door. I think they're called door knockers. And just as a warning that says, hey, everybody, we're going to take this building out. We don't want civilians to get killed. Get out of the building because another more powerful rocket is coming. Um, So, yeah, there's no equivalency here in terms of which army is targeting who. Israel is targeting Hamas's 
military weapons, their military capability, where missiles are stored, where they're launched, uh, and so on. And it was Hamas who was attacking unarmed civilians only. They had no military targets that they attacked. You know, I think... Sorry, I get a little work. That's okay. It's been horrific five days of it, watching what's happening. It's been in Israel. horrible. Yeah, and I think it'd be very appropriate if we just pray for uh, mm. the people in Israel and all that's going on. And I hate to pick on the pastor, but Tom, would you pray? Yeah. Uh, to Lord Jesus, what's going on right now in Israel, we want to see end. We want you, Lord, to reign supreme over Israel, over Hamas, over the Palestinians, over that whole region, and quite frankly, the world. But Lord, we know that without change of hearts, nothing is going to ultimately happen or change this. Give Israel wisdom. Let their leadership, Lord, truly be righteous in the way they respond. And we pray, Lord, that there is absolutely no understanding uh, in their military defense that they would ever hurt civilians, if at all possible. But Lord, Hamas does not have that attitude. And Lord, I would ask right now, along with my brothers here, that Jesus, you appear in dreams or visions to some of these Hamas leaders. Bring them under conviction. And Lord, bring this thing to an end and real repentance and change. Only you can heal it, Lord. Be with our families and friends that are there, those that are trying to get home, protect and watch over them. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Tom Parrish, and thank you, Jeff Verdorn, for a wonderful uh, guy talk. I always enjoy it and always look forward to this. And and it's because we get a chance to have these wonderful questions asked. So thank you for sending in questions. You can always send them over. It doesn't have to be during the show. Maybe on a Monday afternoon, you come up with an idea for a question for Guy Talk. Send it over. You can always email me, bill at myfaithradio.com. That's bill at myfaithradio.com. And you can also put it on the text line, 877-933-2484. Thank you for spending time with us today. I've loved being with you. Have a wonderful night. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.